Good evening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And Clark Grant, for a few more weeks, is in the studio. Soon he will be replaced by Daniel Hogan, who will be taking over for him as our station manager. And this week is Pledge Week. So let's keep public radio alive and healthy here in Butte, Montana. Today, we're going to be speaking with Stuart Pym, and he is the president of Saving Nature. He's also the Doris Duke Chair of Conservation Ecology at the Nicholas School of Environment at Duke University. Wow, I think that's the longest one I've, I've gotten to do so far. And we get to speak to some very interesting people, and certainly Stuart will fit into that category here on Heartstock Radio. In just a moment, Stuart will be with us and tell us all about what he is up to at Saving Nature. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. Thanks for joining in for our program today. We are speaking with Stuart Pym. He is the president of Saving Nature. He's also the Doris Duke Chair of Conservation Ecology at Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. Hi, Stuart. Hello. How are you? (laughs) We're doing great here in Montana. Where are you speaking with us from today? I'm speaking from uh, from my garden, um, from my woods in uh, in Durham, North Carolina, mm. where it's a particularly lovely spring day. Yes, and the same here in Montana. We're just basking in our beautiful weather. After, gosh, uh, just last week there was frost, frost on the lawn and the flowers. Back to what we're here for today, and just hoping you can give our listeners a little intro uh, as to what you're doing there at Saving Nature. One of the great environmental challenges of our time is that we are driving species to extinction um, a thousand times faster than they would go extinct naturally. So we're losing, we're losing biodiversity. We're losing the variety of life um, around the planet. Uh, And with that, we lose many things. Uh, And what I do, both in my uh, professional job at Duke and also in the nonprofit that I direct, is that we look for effective, practical ways of preventing species from, from going extinct. You know, as with a lot of environmental news, it often seems unrelentingly depressing. Uh, and it is. But, you know, there's, uh, there's no reason to, um, to, to be, you know, terminally discouraged because there are many things that we can do. There are many practical things we can do. Yes, and many practical things that you are successfully doing, which I hope we can talk about. But before we venture down that path, tell us a little bit about what you did before all of this, before you came to Duke, before you came to the United States. Well, where did you grow up and where did you study? I grew up in Derbyshire, which is the southern end of the, of the Pennines. It's a very, very beautiful county. 
and my parents met on a date on a, on a bridge going across a, across a small river, and that was the place to which we would return many, many times, hiking at the weekend, sometimes camping. So I was enormously fortunate to have parents who took me out into nature. I went to Oxford as, as an undergraduate. I was a first-generation university student. And after Oxford, I ended up at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico and then led uh, university expeditions to Afghanistan and became fascinated by deserts. So at two o'clock one morning in August, I arrived at a very small uh, cow town in the New Mexico desert and had a wonderful three years and an absolutely marvelous education. I considered New Mexico my home state and I have very, very fond memories of my time there. And what year was that when you went to New Mexico to study? Well, you know, I went to New Mexico because it had deserts and I wanted to study desert ecology. I couldn't have found a place that was more of a contrast between, you know, Las Cruces, New Mexico and, uh, and Oxford, England. But it was, it was a wonderful time there. I had great professors and I learned a huge amount. It was a, a great experience. And, you know, the American West is just spectacular. New Mexico is a beautiful state, just like Montana is. Mm-hmm. And what year did you go to New Mexico, Stuart? I, I went there in 1971. Um, so I, that's when I started my PhD. Okay. And how did your life evolve from there? And how did you end up at, at Duke? Well, the strange thing was that in very short order, I ended up in Hawaii. And I ended up in the forests of Hawaii, which is our cold, wet places. Everybody thinks that Hawaii is a wonderful posting, but that they are on the beach, not at, you know, 8,000 feet above sea level on the northeastern slope of a mountain where it rains all the time. I think I was pre-adapted to Hawaii's weather by coming from England. And I was studying species of birds called honey creepers. And I realized they were going extinct. And before we had the field of conservation, I began to worry about species going extinct, the ethical concern of losing biodiversity, and then the scientific concern of what actions we could take to prevent species extinctions. So in a sense, I was a a card-carrying conservation scientist before we even had a name for that. How did you know that the bird was going extinct. Can you just share a little bit of what happened to you personally and your reaction to that when you realized it and how you realized? It was a shock. I'm a very enthusiastic bird watcher. You know, my binoculars are on the table uh, by me. So if anything uh, flitters by, I will be able to, you know, look at it. So I went to Hawaii with a strong sense of being able to see a lot of species of birds that I had not seen before. And I didn't. A lot of the birds were were so rare that even though I was spending days and days and days in the field, I was not seeing them. And some were so rare that they had not been seen in years. Some were literally down to the last handful of individuals. 
So I became aware that extinction was very real. And not just the birds, but the plants. They were wonderful species of plant there that were down to the last, you know, handful of individuals in the wild. And I think that shook me profoundly because I realized that that extraordinary heritage that Hawaii had was being lost and lost forever once the species goes extinct. You can't bring it back. And did you have a sense of what was causing this? Was this a a man-made phenomenon from the get-go? Did you see that? It was clearly man-made. And the principal cause of of species extinction is that we destroy the, the habitats where species live. And when those habitats go, the species can't survive. But in fact, it's worse than that, because what habitats we leave behind are often in fragments, in pieces, you know, a little patch of forest here and a little patch of forest there. Uh, And those individual fragments of habitats are often too small to sustain viable populations of species. All the males may be in one patch and all the females may be in another. So that led to studies on how fragmentation caused extinction. But importantly, it taught me that if we were to reconnect nature, if we were to undo the fragmentation by by creating corridors of habitats, then we could restore the natural connections. And that's what we do at Saving Nature. We help local conservation groups around the world, in South America, Africa, Asia, to acquire land, restore it, reforest it, and stitch nature back together again. That sounds like very exciting, rewarding work in kind of the face of the the depressing fact that we're causing so many extinctions and just the, the whole state of the environment in general. So let's fast forward. How did you go from Hawaii then to Duke? At the time, I was um, uh, in in Texas. I had my first job in Texas. Then I moved to Tennessee. I was at Tennessee for uh, for seventeen years at the University of Tennessee with excellent colleagues there. But then, almost twenty years ago, Duke had the first ever chair in conservation, so they hired me to come to Duke. So I've been here ever since. And at what point did you found, or did you found, you know, was this something that, that was an offshoot from Duke itself or, or your uh, brainchild for Saving Nature? Yeah, I mean, what we do at um, Saving Nature, as we now call ourselves, started uh, uh, 13, 14 years ago. And it really started with, with a wonderful event. I got one of those uh, phone calls one morning asking if I could, you know, present myself to, uh, uh, to the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences and uh, have an audience with the chap who is now King Willem Alexander, the Dutch king. And I was awarded the uh, Environment Prize. There's no Nobel Prize in Environmental Sciences, but the, uh, uh, the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences awards an international prize. I was 
deeply honored by that. But it gave me the opportunity, the, the, the money to found uh, the organization that is now Saving Nature, and for me to begin to implement the practice of reconnecting nature uh, as an extension of the sort of the academic study and the theory of fragmentation that I had developed as, a, as an academic. And what year was Saving Nature founded? What was the, the impetus and the evolution of that? I got the prize from the Netherlands in 2006. So we have been going, um, you know, 15 years now. So just receiving the prize that created some international attention and may, made it possible for you to found Saving Nature? How did that all happen? It, 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 you know, the prize comes with, uh, I like to put it, you know, a little small statue and a very large check. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and so I was able to, you know, and there's, you know, there's no doubt that the prize honors uh, honors me, but it also honors the field of, of conservation science. It, it basically says, look, the science of doing what we can to, to protect nature, uh, you know, has real heft, it has substance, it's good science, it's good practice. And so I, I view this as an award for, uh, for the field as well as for me. Indeed. So can you sum up for us here? We're, we're just about ready to take our midway point break here. But can you sum up for us the mission? You kind of touched on that before, but what is the, the official mission of Saving Nature? Well, the official mission of Saving Nature is to prevent species from going extinct. Uh, we do that by restoring natural landscapes, especially by reconnecting them. And we call ourselves Saving Nature because you have to reach out to everything. It's not just about particular species. Uh, it's about everything nearby, and it's about the communities of people who live nearby, who work with us and who are partners with us in, in this process of healing nature. Indeedy. So we'll take our little midway point break here in just a moment. We will be back with Stuart Pym. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Welcome back, and this is Heartstock Radio. I am your host, Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Stuart Pym, and he is the president of Saving Nature. Stuart, we were just talking about the mission and all of the things that led up to you founding your nonprofit. Can you please tell us just a little bit more about your partners and how your programs work? You have so many different activities across the globe. And I was especially really amazed when I saw on your website some footage captured of a Sumatran tiger. Very, mm -hmm. very rare. How do you work with the, the folks in Sumatra and other locations? Well, the first thing is we do two kinds of, of mapping 
we do what we call strategic mapping, which is where we look at the distributions of species across the planet, and we work out the sort of the key areas where where the greatest numbers of threatened species live. And that includes sites in, in Colombia and Ecuador and Peru and Brazil, a new site in the in the mountains of East Africa, uh, some sites in India and the northern piece of, of Sumatra. So we we identify these biodiversity hotspots, as they're called. The second piece of the puzzle is we do what's called tactical mapping, that we, we use very detailed maps using remote sensing and, and forest cover data and uh, maps of, of elevations, and we work out exactly where we think the hottest of the hotspots are. The third piece is as different as it could be in that we then have to find the right people with whom to work. We have to engage people who are from the places who know and who love the places that they are trying to conserve. And that is a very magical experience because you find that around the world there are fantastic groups of people like our partner uh, in Sumatra, Rudy Putra, who is just an amazingly engaging guy who is who lives in, in the area where we work, who wants to protect the, the biological heritage of the people nearby. And so we are very much in the in the business of helping local groups. Conservation needs to be local. I do not believe you can do effective conservation you know, sitting in an air-conditioned building inside the Washington, D.C. beltway. I think you've got to be out there where the species are, where the communities are, where the people are. So our partners know their neighbors. You know, they they live in the places. They send their kids to the same schools. So it's a matter of, of finding those wonderful people who who are committed to saving these special places. You mentioned mapping hotspots. So you're looking for areas where these threatened species are somewhat or at least the most plentiful? Well, where they're concentrated. I mean, where there's the largest number of species. And, you know, interestingly, we talked about Hawaii earlier, and Hawaii is one of them. I mean, the thing about Hawaii is there's a lot of species that have got extinct, but there's a lot of, of threatened species that live in Hawaii. So, um, you, you know, you quickly begin to home in on areas that probably um, represent about, you know, 10% of the planet, which are the front lines of conservation. Um, you know, every place matters. I, you know, I care about uh, my garden, my forests nearby, and, and, the, uh, and the areas in, around me in North Carolina. But there are some places that are just really hugely important for, for biodiversity, where there are so many species on the brink of extinction. We have to find them, and we have to work out what we can do there to make a difference. Can you share with our listeners some of your proudest success stories, programs, how they were designed and why they worked? 
Our first success story, which um, we implemented soon after I got the prize from the from the Netherlands, was uh, an area uh, about a hundred miles east of the city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. The forests there are one of these biodiversity hotspots. And one patch of forest, uh, the Union Biological Reserve, just struck me as being tragic. It was an area of, of quite nice forest, but it was isolated. It was isolated from forests elsewhere by, by cattle pastures. And when I saw this particular cattle pasture, I thought, you know, it has to go. We have to raise the money to buy that cattle pasture from the, from the local farmer and reforest it. Um, and the going price was, you know, $300,000. And in my first year, I raised $300 and felt very, very foolish indeed. And then the next year, we came back with a check for you know for three hundred thousand dollars. Um, so I was obviously successful at, at persuading people to to support my vision. And that cattle pasture now is a beautiful uh, stand of trees. I mean, this is the tropics. It's warm. It's wet. Trees grow quickly. It's now an absolutely wonderful patch of forest that's 15 years old with uh, with big trees and with uh, wonderful monkeys like the golden lion tamarind uh, moving through it, uh, 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 pumas moving through it, a whole variety of other species. Um, and so the reserve is no longer isolated. It's, we have reconnected it to the rest of nature. Um, and we've now done projects or started about a dozen projects like that around the world. But that was our first. It's, it's wonderful to watch the forest come back on, on Google Earth because you can look at the, the area year after year to see how the trees came back. Uh, and we are enormously proud of, of what we've achieved there. How were you able to go from 300 to 300,000 that you were able to raise? What, what was your secret, Stuart? I just spent a lot of time talking to people. And I was very fortunate to have uh, and eventually meet and, and develop, you know, some wonderful donors who, who share this vision. And I think, I mean, it's two things. One of them is that, 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 that our donors can sometimes come into the field with us and, um, you know, we give them a spade and get them to plant trees. But I think more generally, our donors can see what they've accomplished. They can, they can go to Google Earth and they can see an area that's now a cattle pasture and know that in five years' time it will be a, a group of small trees and 10 years' time it will be bigger trees and, you know, 15 years' time it will be a forest. So I think people can see exactly how their money is being spent. And so that transparency has always been a key for us, transparency uh, and this commitment to helping local communities. We've got, oh, maybe about four minutes left, and I was hoping you could share with us your plans for the future. What lies ahead? Well, you know, there's a lot more of this restoring nature to do. 
the United Nations has just declared the coming decade, uh, the, the decade of restoration. Uh, I think that's a wonderful idea. It means that uh, many, many different nations around the world recognize that it's time to go on the offensive. You know, rather than just bemoan how much we've lost, uh, we need to get out there and, and start uh, restoring nature, bringing nature back to what it was. And so we have, you know, we have plans for uh, for different sites in South America. We're beginning to do a little bit of work in Africa, in the, uh, in the montane forests of Africa. We've got projects we want to do in Madagascar, There's projects we want to do in Asia. So we, we have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, you know, because it's my work that documents the fact that we are losing species a thousand times faster than they should, I'm often asked, you know, how do I get up in the morning? How do you get up when the news is so bad? Well, the reality is I get up in the morning knowing that there's just so much to do and that we can make such a difference if we put our minds to it. Yes, indeed. And do you have any other places that you'll be going to in the future, new geographic areas? Yeah, I mean, we we know there are that there are key places to work. We're we're fortunate that, that there are places close in in the Americas, um, you know, Colombia and Ecuador in particular are really easy to get to from the U.S. Uh, Brazil is a little bit further, but we get we have a list of these places we've identified with our maps and uh, it's just a matter of uh, you know finding the right partners and, and making sure that we can empower them by by giving them the resources that they need to to restore uh, the places that they know and love and what's the best place for folks to find you Stuart um, just to learn more or carry on the conversation please go to saving nature dot earth um you will find us there and you can find me at stuartpim at me.com me.com is there anything else we've got oh maybe about a, a minute and a half anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners about yeah your work? i mean look I, I think the general theme is this that there are so many you know movies out there that are just unrelentingly depressing uh i've been in a, a half a dozen different movies about the environment. And, and you know, you come out of the theater, you need a stiff drink. You think, gosh, it's just awful. Isn't it terrible? And the answer is yes. But the message that I would like to leave people with is it's not over yet. There are so many things we can do. We can change our lifestyles. We can, we can ensure that our children and grandchildren and generations to come have the same wonderful planet full of diverse and fascinating species that we have now. Mm, I love that. This is Heartstock, and thank you so much, Stuart. Really appreciate the work you're doing. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back next week. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.
As I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said, No trespassing, but on me. 